Hi, welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical education, old books, art, music. Um, we, we have a thing about doors we've done for a while. I was and, just thinking uh, that. I like that that's now our kind of like Well, because thing. I'm also thinking of a door episode in the you future. Are. Yep. Super glad that my episode is the one we're using an example of the dumb stuff. We've well, no, it's all the dumb stuff. To, no. Great to hear. Thanks, guys. Appreciate no, you, it. It's like, it's like we found... Uh, it's like you we, did two, for the record. <laughs> you did two doors. You did two, two doors. I admit... It wasn't my best work. No, no, but it like opened up a whole wing of the podcast. You we didn't might know say it opened up a, a door. We didn't know it existed. We walked through those doors. Walked right through those doors. Um, my name is Graham Donaldson, and I'm here with AJ The Doors Hannenberg. Although one of those doors is literally fused shut, and the other one just is shut. Sorry. Uh, and with uh, Thomas Maybe. Those, those sound like very ineffective doors, just to be mm. clear. That's a, that's a bad well, door. Well, the one that's fused shut is the door to hell, so I, I feel like Ooh, that's, that's, that's a positive. That's, that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Thanks. And today we are talking about commonplace books, I think. Kind of. Um, Thomas, do you have a commonplace book? I do have does one. It, does it matter? Does no, nothing matters, actually. Uh, so, the yeah, I have one. Um, you can go listen to our, our old episode on commonplace books to hear more about it. Mine is not a book so much as it is a collection of note cards. Do you st- have you kept up with it? Uh, not. Uh, I kind of have two systems going right now. So I have the one where things that like I actually really want go in there and it's just not updated as regularly. Mm-hmm. That's the note cards. My much more frequently updated one, and I think this is how AJ does his, is a, I have an Apple note where I just copy things yep. into. You guys are way more, way better at keeping your commonplace books updated than I am. I know AJ's Evernote is pretty, is pretty deep. It's great. I love it. And I do the note card system, and I don't even think I've updated it since we did that episode. So the thing that um, my Apple note is updated whenever I read something that I can copy and paste directly in there, and then... The, you know, no one should buy one of these because there's totally unnecessary, but I have an overhead scanner. Um, cool. That I can scan in. So like when I, like you, YouTube can see this and YouTube sitting here, YouTube and YouTube. Wow. Uh, that I, I put flags in my books as I read them and then I can scan them in and my flags are like in the book. It's like I get a PDF at the end with all my flags in it. Um, so that's how I collect a lot of that stuff hmm. too. That makes it a lot easier. It scans it into like an editable PDF and then I can just copy it into my notes. Do you write in your books? No, okay. no, I would never do that. That's what I do. All my books end up becoming a commonplace book because I, I write in all of them. Yeah. And so I can, if I flip through it, then it's sort of, that's how I teach out of my books and that's how I do it. So it's almost like my books are commonplace books, but I really need to like get that into note cards. And yeah, someplace you can access all of it yeah. rather than carrying a exactly. library around. Yeah. yeah, I know that um, I've talked before about how, Graham, you can like flip through your books and know where things are and I, I just yeah. never can do that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's because you're writing in it. It's I think I think tactile. so. Yeah. Okay, so the actual topic of our discussion today is closer to AJ's joke about nothing meaning anything. We're talking about a fellow named Giacomo Leopardi. So, that's a cool name, just for the record. Can I read his full name? I'm going to butcher it, but this is his full name. Count, so first off, Count. Mm-hmm. Giacomo, tell, that wasn't me commanding you to Count. That's he was. That's like his title. <laughs> one yeah, one. name, okay. Giacomo. One. <laughs> Giacomo. Count Giacomo Tal de Gardo Francesco di Salis Saverio Pietro Leopardi. I butchered every one of those. Um, just, I'm just going to throw this out there yeah. as a question. Yeah. Italian? <laughs> How could you tell? <laughs> Weirdly enough, he's English. No. Uh, yes, he, he is Italian. <laughs> so, r- Russian. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so, Point Donaldson. Uh, this is not a quiz show. Oh. Apologies. We can make it a quiz show. I don't know. I'll probably ask you questions at some point as we go. I'm going to go get the bell so I can buzz in. Wonderful. Does the squish show matter? No, nothing matters. Literally <laughs> Sorry, nothing I matters. I my we're, is, this is the first time we've recorded in about a month, so we're all kind of getting back in the swing of things. Uh, so, Leopardi, th- 
Labor Party is not exactly what I would call a household name, um, at least in like English speaking land, which is the land I inhibit. So, uh, is this a name that you all have heard of before? This nope. Giacomo. Nope. Yep, early on the podcast. <laughs> That's point eight. Point Hindenburg. Hindenburg. We are tied one <laughs> one for the lamest of responses. So, <laughs> got up my game. If you, if uh, if I were to ask you all who the most famous Italian poet is, this is your next quiz show question. Most famous Italian poet. The answer is obviously Dante, Virgil. Uh, no, Dante is the correct answer. So thanks, uh, Virgil Roman. But that's not. When Italian. I feel like you had to write in Italian to be Italian. I don't. He's writing it what, Latin. Yeah, not Italian. Yeah, but most of the people during Virgil's time are writing in Italian. But like Latin all too. Romantic languages post Virgil will, will claim Virgil. Are right? you saying like by nationality or by language? I, yes, I object both, to the question. Both. The answer is both because Graham's answer is correct. Graham, you get another point for not fighting me on the answer. That's three. Graham is three. AJ is one. Farts. Okay. So the most famous Italian poet is obviously Dante. If I were to ask you the second most famous Italian poet, who would that be? Petrarch. Oh, that's wrong. Virgil. Also wrong. <sighs> Are you kidding? <laughs> He's in Dante. Okay. So my answer is Giacomo Leopardi. Okay. So, <laughs> and, and like this, you know, if you were to Google famous Italian poets, he, Dante is the first name and Leopardi is the second one. Do it right now. Cause it's literally the right answer. AJ don't fight me. Okay. Is Petrarch Italian. I don't, think so. I don't know. I know nothing. Okay. So, uh, Leopardi is a poet. Did you just Google it, AJ? What do you see? So tell me what you see. I'm just curious. Italian poetry. I'm looking. <laughs> I feel like you've picked a specific link that's going anyway, whatever. I'm working on it. Great. Okay. So, uh, Leopardi is a poet. He also, uh, he started like, well, I'll go into his biography in a second, but he's most known for his, for his poetry. He also has like a worldview and philosophy that's backing up that poetry that we'll dive into as well. Graham's reference to me reading from his commonplace book is that if you want to read the works of Leopardi, there are essentially two books that you need. I say books, they're tomes is probably more accurate because yeah. they're giant. They're huge. So all of Leopardi's poems, I say that, there are only like 50 of them, but it's all of his poems plus some other like commentary and stuff. But all of his poems are collected in a work called the Conti. Conti just means songs. So uh, there's the Conti by Leopardi if you want all of his poetry. And if you want his writings on everything else, it's called the Zibaldone. There's no reason you should know this. Zibaldone in Italian means hodgepodge. So it's his hodgepodge of thoughts that he's, uh, the way it's formatted is literally as, a, as his journal. So there's, there are dates on many of the different pages and it tells you, and it's just a chronological order of these are the things he wrote in his journal going from, uh, whenever he started until about five years before he died. Unfortunately, it doesn't go right up to his death, which would, would have been cool. The, the Zibaldone is also like 2,000 pages of actual material plus 500 pages of commentary. It's a giant book. Don't read this book. Do read this book. It's great, but don't read this book. Um, it, it, it's a translation of his original 4,500 page plus journal and then put in really, really tiny font. And then it's marked in the page. It, it tells you what the original page number is as you're going through it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So like you'll be reading along. It tells you it's page 45, even though you're on page Did you read 20. this whole thing? Yeah, I read all 2,000 pages because I'm really committed to this podcast. What did you read for the for your episode? Mine was 44 pages. <laughs> I obviously did not read the entire Zee because oh. that would be insane. I um, 
my, I'm doing a book I read a long time ago. <laughs> so I'm I, all, in my defense, I didn't just read the 44 pages. I tried. I aimed for a much you don't larger have to book. Yourself. It was I am, I'm going to do it. Okay, great. Maggie. Hey, did you also look up the fam- most famous Italian poet? Yes. Yeah, what did it say? Virgil isn't listed, which oh, I so think weird. is because it's the wrong so answer. spurious. Maybe they, they, they call him Roman. Maybe that's the issue. Okay, there you go. But he, uh, where's Rome? Huh, Italy. But not at the time he was writing. It was yes. It didn't move places I later. Clear, I just want to be clear that you think these, the boundaries we have currently are like across time. Is that what you think about statehood? And every, I don't understand. <laughs> Nailed it. Okay, I'm furious. Okay, <laughs> it sounds like it. Because also, but I can. But see Rome it. wasn't. Whatever. I can see the point. Because I was about the Roman Empire, not the Roman city. Like I don't. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> I think yeah. he lived in the Roman city, Did which actually, was in Italy. Italy. If he had lived that many thousand years in the let's future, move, let's move past <laughs> it, okay. Magby. Um, okay, so. I don't remember where we were, but he, there are two there are two books that if you want to like be introduced to this guy, you should read. Why are we talking about Leopardi? A couple of reasons. The like the most pressing reason is well, him being the second most famous Italian poet is like a thing that matters. We'll read some of his poetry, um, and I I think it is like you know it's haunting and beautiful. But I'm not the uh, uh, poem expert, so we'll see what the other two. Uh, individuals, chuckleheads. What's a what's a term for you? Uh, peanut gallery. No. Well, who, if 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 the question for the quiz show was who is the poetry expert, what's the right answer? Maybe. Which of you two is the poetry expert? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like the answer has to be Graham. Um, just in terms of what you teach. Ding, ding, ding. No, <laughs> no, no. I <laughs> answered that you question. Know more or because I you answered the question, so I get the point. Oh. I don't understand. I say that only because I think you teach more poetry. I, I know that I know Homer is like an epic poem, but that's like different than what we're reading here. Uh, Leopardi kicks off um, lyrical poetry. I have the the actual term written down. Um, what are his years? Just oh, he was born in 1798, died okay. 1837. Um, Romantic. Well, yes. So uh, this is a separate thought, but like all these labels only happen decades sure. after these people are alive. So Leopardi wouldn't have called himself a romantic, I don't think. And also, isn't there like this conflict between the romantics and the classicists? Yes, so yes. So he loves the classics. It's the conflict. It is the conflict? That's I what think they're so. re- reacting against? So Leopardi loves the classics. Yeah. So he, I'll do, uh, hold on, sorry. My, why are we talking about Leopardi? First off is, uh, he's a super famous Italian poet. Second is that there's a great, I, I, I'm sure recommending podcasts on my podcast is not a great idea. But um, First Things put out a podcast uh, talking about Leopardi and kind of a, a, a compare-contrast. It's mostly about a biography of Leopardi, but also contrasts them with Nietzsche. And they spent about 30 minutes on it. And in typical classical stuff fashion, I want to take three hours to discuss what they discussed in 30 minutes. Um, but I think there's an interesting idea there of two different approaches to nihilism. And uh, so I'm imagining this will go cool. over the course of a few episodes. I think we're very used to the Nietzschean idea of what meaninglessness is or how to deal. It's like going crazy and dying of syphilis, like that kind of That's one. not what his philosophy said. That, that's what he personally did. Um, but Leopardi kind of gives a contrast to Nietzsche. So that's what that's part of what I want to go to. And then also, I think that this compare-contrast between Leopardi and Nietzsche gets at some of the disagreements that you two, AJ and Graham, have had about nihilism and whether this is like a good or helpful philosophy. So disagreements. Yeah. I know we've never had them before. <laughs> Whoever commented and said that, um, most of our disagreements are about are people with strongly held opinions about very minor differences. I think that's also a good summary of our podcast. Um, okay. Differences are huge. Are they? They're, they're, <laughs> no, they're, they're probably minor. Uh, okay. So those are, those are some reasons and I'll have more to say if we get to it. Okay. 
So who is this guy, Leopardi? Uh, I'll, I'll read this. I, I, I said he was the second most famous Italian poet, and I've repeated that a hundred times now. But this is from an, an intro to an article in the New York Times about one of the earlier translations of the Zibaldone. The differences don't matter, but there's a, another collection of his written works. All of them are in the Zibaldone. There's another one that like selects only some of them. It's still a thousand pages across five, five volumes, but this is the, the opening in the New York Times article. Matthew Arnold compared Giacomo Leopardi to Goethe and Wordsworth as a cultural force. The Italians usually rank him as their greatest poet after Dante. Schopenhauer regarded Leopardi, the pessimistic thinker, as a kindred spirit. Nietzsche revered Leopardi, Leopardi the prose writer, and believed him to be one of the four best stylists of the 19th century. And then it goes on from there. But this is not just some like random guy, is the point that I'm trying to get to. So... Graham set up this conflict between romantics and the, um, I don't know if classicist is the right term, but people who like the classics, people who like Greek and Rome. Uh, Leopardi's... Yeah, I mean, oh. I don't know if you're going to get into it. it. It's not just a preference thing. Like, it, it's even getting deeper into, like, a worldview and what is uh, kind of questions about, um, like, what Dante thinks about the world versus what Mary Shelley thinks about the world are very different. But anyway. Well, so. we, we will get there mm-hmm. for, in terms of what this guy thinks, because yeah. I'm, I'm very focused on him. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be curious how you think that sure. plays in with, because I don't, I, I think, I don't teach them or study the romantics, but I, I think of them as much more optimistic. There's a longing in their writing of wanting to go back to an earlier time, which is very present in Leopardi's writings, mm-hmm. but they don't <clears throat> tend to be as, like, I long for death as Leopardi is. Gotcha. I, I, I think, okay. but you'll, you'll be able to tell me when we get there. He, Leopardi, um, um, was raised in a, uh, like a, you know, I, I told you before he's a count. So he kind of comes from, I don't know if nobility is the right word, but his, his parents are titled, but they had financial problems. They still maintained their title throughout life. But, um, Leopardi's father had a gambling problem and to compensate, Leopardi's mother was very strict with money. Um, that strictness kind of followed through with her religious teachings, so a very um, devout religious family he came from. Um, Leopardi's education, what, he had tutors and he had education and all that, but most of what he learned came from his father's library and, you know, just well-stocked with all the classics, I guess is the easiest way to say it. Uh, Leopardi would, by I want to say by the age of like, 12 or 14 was fluent in at least Greek and Latin. And I think he had Hebrew in there too. He's just one of those precocious children who I think ultimately would fluently learn six, five or six different languages. Um, But his education was very much centered in um, languages. He did a lot of translation growing up as well. Naming the titles is not helpful or interesting, but that's most of his first 16 years of life are around translation. And then something happens at 16 where he kind of see, he has this sense that the translation work is not as fulfilling or interesting or, or important as what he could be doing. And I don't have like a great story to, to kick it off, but the, the important part is that around 16, he moved his focus from the work of translation to the work of poetry. So he saw poetry as the more important goal of life than... Well, can't say that was a lucrative I was about to say, I mean... <laughs> Well, that's we lost not, him. <laughs> you're right. I mean, and he, I, I think from what I read, he had work before 16 translating 
these these different books and stuff, and he would not be financially successful through you know much or at all of his life. Um, but he was still he was he was a devoted student. Like I said, learned a lot of languages, read a lot, but and when he was young, had an optimism and an appreciation for life. He even in his later poetry would always point back to his childhood as this kind of idyllic, just perfect time in his life. He was happy, had everything he wanted, had a family that he really liked. Things were good. And then at 18, um, I think this, uh, part of this will be a quote from the first things I referenced the podcast. There's an article as well that I'll quote from quite liberally as we go through. Um, at 18, however, this happiness, uh, seemed a bitter delusion. Um, he had pursued academic interest for so long. Um, here it says seven years of, uh, of a, he had pursued seven years of mad and desperate study that had left him physically misshapen and unfit for the normal life he wanted. The years he had passed bent over the books and papers had aggravated his inborn scoliosis, mm. a curvature of the spine that formed a hump on his chest and another on his back, uh, wreaking havoc in his heart and lungs, which would give out completely in his mid thirties. Um, I think he actually died at 38. So edge of mid thirties. Leopardi had turned himself into a hunchback, something less than a whole man, a target for children's jibes and, and missiles and a hopeless loser with women who averted their eyes when he came too close. So idyllic youth Bloody. learns a lot by 18. Like literally he's so hunched over his study materials that he becomes a hunchback. This is like an argument that my students would give as to why they should like have English class outside. Sure. <laughs> I feel like you want to have English class outside also. So you're pretty. I'm not, I'm not when there's pollen in the air. Uh, that's fair. But if it's going to prevent them from being hun- hunchbacks, I feel like it's probably worth it. Yeah. I need okay. to sit up. I feel like I need to sit up straight uh, now. Yeah. Listener, you can't see this, but YouTube, you can. That both AJ and Graham just uh, <laughs> corrected their posture as we were going through this. Uh, but that, so 18 kind of kicks off like bummer time for Leopardi because what he is wanting is, you know, entering into an independent adulthood, um, success with women, um, a lucrative career, or at least like a popular career in like uh, to have some kind of fame for his poetry and all that. And none of that comes to pass. He falls in love with a woman. Uh, he falls in love with many women. There's one like main woman. Her name is Fanny, which is very funny. But um, Fanny is also married to a, a man. So, you know, there's that. Buddy. Well, yeah, the way it's portrayed in uh, Leopardi's writing is that this isn't as big a deal as we might think it is. It's bad, just to be clear, but um, this was like a more common thing. I don't know. It's bad. Don't do that. But he is interested in this woman. I'm summarizing lots of history to kind of get to his works, but he's in love with this woman. He doesn't have any success with her, but his best friend does. And so he also has to deal with this, like seeing other people around him, uh, have oh, success bro. in what he really cares in romance uh, rough. An arena he really cares about and he doesn't get to have that um, he was never financially successful he had to live with his parents um, they were uh, again I, I mentioned religiously devout in a very strict family he was never allowed to leave the house on his own so he would have um, a chaperone he'd have someone with him everywhere he went until his late 20s I want to say is when he takes his first trip outside the house on his own and it's to go like down the street to meet with this writer who he really respected, who was in town briefly. Uh, so there's this conflict between him and his parents. There's this terrible story, uh, that about, well, embarrassing story about Leopardi's father 
Uh, Leopardi's fa father was irked that the boy Giacomo boorishly cut his meat with a fork, and so his father would cut it up for him the proper way at every meal until the son was 27 years old. So he has a, a not great time at home. Not a lot of, like, mutual respect between everyone. Yikes. Yeah. That poor kid. Yeah. yeah. Well, 27, so we're past poor kid territory. But yes, like poor human, right? Uh, he is not worth going into here, but his... He, there's kind of like a suffering and silence going on. Not That's not the right... He, there was kind of a, a sullen suffering for most of... Leopardi's life, and then he had the, um, there was a, a writer he really looked up to, Pietro Giordani, a Milanese writer, and he uh, uh, Leopardi wrote a letter to Pietro, describing how hard it is to live in this backwater town. Um, Pietro came, came to town, and they got to talk and spend time together, and that him go again Leopardi going to meet with Pietro was his first time leaving the house on his own, um, and the entire he comes back from that, and the entire um, Leopardi household is like disgusted with him. Like clearly something had changed in him with that taste of freedom and with meeting with this hero of his where he was no longer Pietro's main influence is to lead to Leopardi's walking away from the faith, even though for all intents and purposes, he probably wasn't a Christian at this point. It's there are lots of scholars who disagree with this about this, but it's not important. Leopardi essentially becomes more outspoken in his disagreements after meeting with this um, author hero of his. This will then kick off a lot of Pietro's writing, or I'm sorry, Leopardi's writings, but his life will, uh, I would say tragically, but to him, uh, thankfully, he, he's happy about this. He dies at the age of 38. He dies during an outbreak of cholera, but he probably didn't actually die from cholera. He died from like the his scoliosis uh, pushing his lungs and heart and leading to their um, failure. So, not a very happy fellow. Any thoughts, any thoughts before I go into this guy? Um, I mean, you got to let your kid grow up at some point. <laughs> sure, yeah. I think that's a, a good takeaway. No, seriously, like you can't, yeah. Um, can't cut their meat until they're 27. If you kept, you know, you masculate, it, it's like almost <laughs> symbolic, right? You've emasculated him to the point where he like collapses in on himself. That's, wow. Yikes. Especially when he wants, he wanted to have success with women and you made him have a chaperone and also cut the kid's meat for him. <laughs> yeah. So I do think, um, what a way to, to, you know, shoot down your kid's dreams. Yes. I do think he is largely to blame for his lack of success. Uh, um, Fanny was asked about like why I'm remembering the second hand. So I apologize if I get the quotes wrong, but Fanny was asked like, why did you prefer the best friend to lay a party? And her response was that lay party smelled bad. So, like, you know, Leopardi is not making it easy gotcha. on himself. But I take your point of his parents did not help him in any of these things. Okay. Um, but so we listen to this and think, like, big, sad, tragic life. Why is he still important? Um, I had originally wanted to go into his thought, like his uh, essay writing. But I think we should let's go to his poetry first, actually, just to get a sense for this guy. Now, Thomas, I must say the way that you sort of characterized him and the sort of the tragedy of his life. I don't really know if I have high hopes for the poetry being great because uh, he, he sounds like... Am I reading it? A, yeah, I don't want to read it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know. He sort of sounds like a, <clears throat> like a neckbeard. Yeah. Um, but let's... I, I take your point. And I know you all have said before that most... I don't know if you'd say it this way, but like successful poets and artists haven't always been uh, moody and miserable. Mm -hmm. I think that's a more modern thing. 
his but he's life, he's moody, miserable, and, and modern. That's what I mean. Yeah, and you know, uh, maybe some people would disagree with like early eighteen hundreds as modern, but like that's kind of the the age for it, right? Well, it yeah. sounds like he comes by his moodiness honestly. That's what I mean. So it's, this, is, this, is, this isn't just like I hate my parents. Yeah, it's like yeah. Actual. Yeah, it's not a self-imposed sure. drama. Right. It's yeah. it's the actual drama. This kid's got yeah. some problems. He smelled yeah. bad though. Um, the poems we'll go through are roughly in. Well, they are in order of publication. I don't have the years up there. It doesn't really matter. Uh, his most famous poem we're not going to do today. I think it's his most famous. It's, I think it's called the broom. It's like 20 pages long. It's just much longer than the rest of these. And I'm hoping more to get us a taste for his writing. This first one's only a page long. Um, it might bear reading twice, but did you want me to do the solitary thrush or infinity? Infinity. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we'll do, is it the infinite or is it, it says infinity at the top. Okay. It's funny because all these are translated from Italian. So if I, re- anyway, some of my references will be wrong because it's just a different translation. But um, infinity is, is one of his <clears throat> most famous poems. Uh, and it's one of his earliest as well. Um, I think it's only one page. I hope it's only one page. It's very short. Yeah. Okay, good. So let's read that. And then we'll go, we'll bounce between his poetry and his philosophy as we go. Infinity. This lonely hill was always dear to me, and this hedgerow, which cuts off the view of so much of the last horizon. But sitting here and gazing, I can see beyond, in my mind's eye, unending spaces and superhuman silences and depthless calm, till what I feel is almost fear. And when I hear the wind stir in these branches, I begin comparing that endless stillness with this noise, and the eternal comes to mind, and the dead seasons and the present living one, and how it sounds. So my mind sinks in this immensity, and foundering is sweet in such a sea. Graham, I guess first question to you. I don't know how to think about similarities or differences between other romantic poets and this. Does anything stick out? Sure, I mean, mind's eye is a big romantic uh, conceit. Uh, Seeing things in one's mind's eye is a big deal. Um... Um, obviously nature, um, uh, he doesn't mention the Aeolian harp, but that idea that the wind is blowing as, as like the season, as like the wind is blowing outside, it's also like moving and blowing on in sort of the inner, the inner self. Um, and then, but then, I mean, different, the, the romantic poets don't often then really jump to that sort of metaphysical thing like it's implied as opposed to really sort of saying like, now I think about God or now I think about the eternity. That's more of a like John Donne. That was what I was thinking when I was reading it. That's more of a John Donne move where you get into that metaphysical end where the turn at the end of the poem is, is talking about eternity. Yeah. Poems called eternity. Um, whereas, yeah, um, a lot of the British romantics don't do that turn explicitly. Um, it's sort of implicit in the, in the poem. Uh, anyway, so yes, but so, yeah. But you see some similarities, but some differences, yes. which I think is... But it's also translated uh, as well. That's fair. Um, but, um, so you wonder if the translator is, I don't know, like the, the, big, the big clue for me was mind's eye. That, yeah. the, the mind's eye is a big romantic deal. Sure. That's something that wouldn't stick out to me, yeah. so I appreciate that. Um, AJ, any thoughts reading through it? No, it did sound like John Donne a little bit. Mm-hmm. I can't see what it's, you're saying. It's just because John Donne's like the metaphysical poet, and this has yeah. the metaphysical turn at the end yeah. of it. Sure. Yeah. Because I, yeah, because in terms of like literally what's happening, it's a guy on a hill looking over like some bushes that he can't see past and then imagining what it's like over there. 
I think at the end he's moving to thinking about death. Mm-hmm. He's talking about eternity, eternity. But I think what he's talking about is he's comparing this kind of noise around him to the silence on the other side of what he can't see. It seems like this kind of compare contrast between life and death. Um, but the enjoyment of floundering is a different thing. Like he's li- he likes being in that space between like the fear and also yes. it means something. Yeah. Um, the, in, in the Italian, there's a word in there, shipwreck, like mm. the noun shipwreck. This translator doesn't use it, but other, other word translated it's, and it is sweet to shipwreck in such a sea. Yeah. Yeah. Which, well, but that, that was my, I was wondering, is that, that kind of floundering, is that a romantic, uh, habit? Not that I know of. Okay. Uh, I think that idea will be consistent through most of his writing of he's not really going anywhere. There's not some destination or answer he's looking for. It's, isn't it beautiful in this space of getting to think about these big things? He's not looking for an answer to what's on the other side. In, in his mind, it's figured out. He, he knows that death is on the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other thoughts? The infinite. AJ, can you read that line again about the past the past seasons? Can you read that sort of, that little clause, that little section? And when I hear the wind stir in these branches, I begin comparing that endless stillness with this noise. And the eternal comes to mind, and the dead seasons, and the present living one, and how it sounds. So my mind sinks in this immensity. Yeah, what's the noise when he says this noise? It's Is the he referring the, to what? the branches. Oh, okay. I think. Oh, I thought, yeah, okay. Well, what's the pre- present stillness? Anyway, I don't know. The unending spaces and superhuman silences and depthless calm. Yeah. Isn't that on the other side, though? Yeah. Oh, I see. That's what he's saying. So everything. Okay. Well, the thing, I can the see side beyond in my see. mind's eye all this extra stuff. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. And then I hear the wind okay. here, yeah. and so I compare that endless death with the current noise. Gotcha. Yeah. Now I'm on board. Because it's, it's also a very positive view of, like, after I'm past what I can't see, like, that's where things are calm. Mm-hmm. That's where things are relaxed or whatever and all the, the noises on this side. I think this is the least edgy of the poems that I have for us today. Mm-hmm. I think it like genuinely captures, I think, an interesting feeling of, um, of wonder, amazement, at contemplation at eternity, death, you know, those things. Is this one of his earlier ones? This is one of his earlier yeah, ones. So he's, he's around 20 at the time this poem comes out um, of his, yeah, uh, in terms of his, like, quote-unquote good poetry, this is the first one. Mm-hmm. So, Do I get to read the second one? If you want to, I think the next one's long, so let me make sure first. So um, this is one of his earlier works. This is a, um, not too far off from when he was either questioning his faith or um, just, um, yeah, this, this question of like whether he's Christian or not is not maybe particularly interesting. Um, but uh, he still holds to, he's so, in, he's so well-read that he never moves away from like the stories of the Bible yeah. and Christian theology will shape all of his writings for the, for the entirety of his life. But he's also living at a time of like the weird romantic reimagining of the biblical stories. Yeah. He, I I didn't, I didn't go super deep in these parts, but in his Zibaldoni, he'll have like 11 ways to, this is the listicle way of putting it, but it's 11 ways to read the Bible that don't require belief in God essentially. And so he'll say that he's being consistent with Christianity when really it's like you're so drastically reimagining it that it's hard to yep. call them the same thing. Fun fact, that's what I'm going to do my next podcast. On. Yeah, I, when you said yours, I thought these two would actually really go together. Can you pass it on to Graham for the next one? This one's, you know, we got it. It's, it's, 
kind one? of romantic-y. To his lady? To his lady. Allah, Allah. Suya Dona. Um, my, yeah, I've, I've, I've had so much fun butchering the Greek uh, Persian language with Herodotus that now I get to butcher the Italian language. So uh, I'm sure I've mentioned before, my wife studied abroad in Italy and she's just been laughing all week at me trying to pronounce different Italian words. So apologies. Okay, so we talked about this before. He had this interest in a woman named Fanny. Fanny did not reciprocate any affection for him and in fact preferred his best friend. This is a poem that uh, we probably should, uh, we can just read it and uh, and then talk about it. Okay. To his lady. Beloved beauty who inspires love from afar. Your face concealed, except when your celestial image stirs my heart in sleep, or in the fields where light and nature's laughter shine more lovely. Was it maybe you who blessed the innocent age they call golden? And do you now, blithe spirit, soar among men? Or does the miser, fate, who hides you from us, keep you for the future? No hope of seeing you alive remains for me now, except when, naked and alone, my soul will go down a new street to an unfamiliar home. Already, at the dawn of my dark, uncertain day, I imagined you a fellow traveler on this parched ground. But no thing on earth is equal to you. And if there were someone who had a face like yours, though she resembled you in word and deed, she'd be less lovely." In spite of all the suffering fate assigned to human life, if there was anyone on earth who truly loved you as my thought portrays you, this life for him would be a joy. And I see clearly how your love would still inspire me to seek praise and virtue, the way I used to in my early years. Though heaven gave no comfort for our suffering, still mortal life with you would be like what in heaven becomes divinity." In the valleys, where you hear the weary farmer singing, and I sit and mourn my youth's illusion fleeing, and on the hills where I turn back and lament my lost desires, my life's lost hope, I think of you and start to shake. In this sad age and unhealthy atmosphere, I try to keep your noble look in mind. Without the real thing, I enjoy the image." Whether you are the one and only eternal idea that eternal wisdom disdains to see arrayed in sensible form, to know the pains of mortal life in transitory dress, or if in the supernal spheres another earth from among unnumbered worlds receives you, and and a near star lovelier than the sun warms you and you breathe benigner benigner ether from here, where years are both ill-starred and brief, Accept this hymn from your unnoticed lover. Is that for a cheery note? So what is he writing about here? I love you. You don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> that, that part is true. I th- is, is she not? Is she dead? It seems like. My first reading is that she sounds dead, especially that last part of like, where have you gone to? Yeah. Are you on some other planet? Right. My understanding is that this is more a poem to the ideal of woman. Yeah. And that it's not it, that first part of I've never met you, but I love you. It's that there's this ideal perfect woman who he's never encountered. There, one of the later lines is, even if you were instantiated here on earth, I wouldn't love that person as much yeah, yeah. as I love you. 
Oh man, he's oh, man, like he's a, leaning so far in a neck beard. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it is, is he, and he's he's like a cringy Dante. I was gonna say because Dante <laughs> is in this tradition also. Because <laughs> yes. Beatrice, the, yes, the exactly. ideal Beatrice doesn't exist, and the real Beatrice died at fourteen or whatever it yeah. was. And so they're both doing the same thing. Yeah, I do think there's something worse. I don't. I don't know. Man, that's so interesting. That's so cool though. Like taking Dante, uh, you know, twelfth, thirteenth century, whatever he is. I can't remember his years. Uh, take Dante, high middle ages, in that world with talking about Beatrice, and then take Leopardi in the 19th century where, like, you know, uh, everything's kind of blasting apart with romanticism, and then put have them write poetry on the same theme and have it be very different. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I'd have to think about it. I, just, I don't have any baked thoughts on it yet. Yeah, because Dante will, then t- will take his love of Beatrice, well, at the end of the... Purgatorio, when they find when Beatrice and Dante meet, uh, Beatrice rebukes yeah, yeah. Dante because he's forgotten his first love. He's he's kind of like taken too long to get there. He should have like run after the chance to to be united with her again, or not even. It's not even really about her. It's about he oh hasn't God. run after God enough. And here, Leopardi is saying that my love should motivate me to this virtue, but I can't attain you. So there's no point in doing that. Um, he'll so he specifically cites virtue in there. But, um, and also, you don't see me. Yeah, <laughs> and there's like no possibility of like a real love. Only this ideal is possible. It's like dashboard confessional. <laughs> it feels like that though. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's pretty rough. <laughs> but mm, yeah, is it uh, is it romantic? Uh, it is definitely romantic. Now, not romantic in terms of of like like a romance novel you f- read at the airport. You should send this to. A no, beloved. This yeah, is a, yeah. probably a bad idea. Just in this to no one. Yeah, yeah. but it's <laughs> romantic. That part where he's like, I could strive after the praise and virtue that you know, like I used to, but not, not really anymore. <laughs> but it's romantic in that, like the turn, the turn towards the therapeutic and the the internal man that you know uh, is anyway. Yeah, oh, that's an interesting idea. Can you say more? Um, like he's not interested in doing anything. Yeah, the. Um, with Dante, the subject, even though Dante's talking about himself, like. Dante's if you if you were painting Dante, Dante's like the little dude in the bottom left hand corner, and then like the rest of the picture is what's important. Right. If you if mm. if Leopardi is painting himself, it's Leopardi front and center. The whole picture is just him yeah. being mopes on the hillside because yeah. the girl doesn't like him. Yeah, I don't. And that and it's sort of it's this the artist's view of where they fit into the art. And romanticism is very much like putting the artist center forward and putting their own internal, you know, what was the line from the first poem, uh, the mind's eye, putting their own um, reading and perspective and their own vision of what's happening in the world is the subject. Whereas in in classical poetry, we're going to use Dante, um, the subject is not the poet, the subject is the thing you're talking about, God or Beatrice or whatever. So, And is this part of the switch that it switches from from wanting to reinforce sort of the stable sentiments to wanting to kind of have a new novel expression? Like, is that part of the deal? Yeah. Because yeah. that's kind of the feel. I don't know if it's novel. It's definitely um, the the artist is the... Or counter-traditional? Is the work. Yeah, it's the artist is the the, the art now. Yeah. Uh, and then, so that's what I meant when I said therapeutic. It's yeah. like the the whole point of the poem is to work through the artist's pain or whatever. Whereas that's not 
Whereas Dante works through his pain in, in, in the Divine Comedy, but that's not the central focus of the, of the play. The central the, focus the, seems to be, I, 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 I use the phrase audience may be unfamiliar with, but the stable sentiments, mm-hmm. right? Reinforcing here are the traditional thoughts about the world and about God and about all these things and to do, to sort of reinforce those in a, an artistic way. Yeah. I guess um, I was wondering, is it my, when I think of the romantics, I think of that move from, you know, I'm staring at one flower, but this one flower makes me think of all of existence. Is that actually, is that not romantic? That's fair. No, that's, that, okay. that is. Um, cause my, um, cause what's, I, I just, I agree with your point a hundred percent that what Leopardi sees is himself mm-hmm. everywhere. And so, but there's no consolation anywhere that he looks. It's mm-hmm. only, I can't attain, I have this desire for love inside of me. There's nothing I can do to achieve it. Uh, life is misery. Like that's kind of the, mm-hmm. the series of uh, events, but which I don't think is romantic. I mean, you're, is the argument that you're going to say that it's nihilist? Uh, kind of, I guess yeah. we'll, we'll get there in a second. Um, His philosophy very much is. Uh, I could very much get behind an argument that says that romanticism is the handmaiden of nihilism. Like romanticism is the wagon that nihilism rides in. Um, I'm not sure uh, you would be the one to make an excellent episode about that. Cause I, my knowledge is not sufficient to get there, but I think that this, what Leopardi is writing and feeling ultimately leads to nihilism. Yeah, yeah. I just make that as an objective claim about his life. Maybe it's proof. AJ, can you grab the book and read the last one in there, which is to himself is the, uh, it, it's flagged in there, but to himself is the name of the poem. Um, okay. So we've talked about Leopardi's, uh, tough life that he's had. This is a poem closer to the end of his life. We have a poem that he dictated, uh, I want to say days before he died. We won't go into it because it is, it's bleak. And this next one also is very bleak. Uh, but this, there's almost like a compounding of all the misery and sadness around him that is worked out in his poetry. There are lots of, uh, poems to point to, to show this to himself is short and I think makes the point most clearly. Um, and we'll, after we do this, we'll go into a little bit of his philosophy that kind of backs this up. So do you want to read to himself? Sure. To himself. Now you'll rest forever, worn out heart. The ultimate illusion that I thought was eternal died. It died. (laughs) I know not just the hope, but the desire for loved illusions is done for us. Be still forever. You have beaten enough. Nothing deserves your throbbing, nor is earth worth sighing over. Life is only bitterness and boredom, and the world is filth. Now be calm. Despair for the last time. Death is the one thing fate gave our kind. Disdain yourself now, nature, the brute hidden power that rules to common harm, and the boundless vanity of all. So this is four years before he dies. So this is a 34-year-old writing um, about, like, the end of youth and misery. And anyway, he's writing a poem to his heart. Um, Graham, you laugh. But even if he he got the girl, like, he's not going to be happy. I I know. She's lucky Uh, to get away. Um, (laughs) I think that's true. uh, Because, like, yeah, anyway. I laugh just because, like, the emphatic, it died, (laughs) is... And I'm, I'm sure in the Italian... It is uh, not as – I'm sure that the cadence and the flowing in the Italian is, is, is artistic. Peri lingano estremo, ceterno io mi credi. Perfect. Peri. <laughs> Peri. <laughs> Let me um, actually uh, 
I'll follow with Graham's point after this. AJ, any thoughts reading this poem? Do you love this poem? No, I don't love this poem. I no, it's it feels like (laughs) so it feels like stuff that I wrote when I was in high school. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, sure. This is this is it feels like teen angst poetry. Yeah, and just that that line. What is this? Life is only bitterness and boredom, and the world is filth. Like, you just need to slap him on the back, give him a beer, go, like, you know, lift some weights. Watch, watch a game, watch bro. A, like, yeah. Like, do some squats. He, some deadlifts. <laughs> do you even lift Straighten some? that spine out, sure. and, uh, you know, get you, back, get you back in the game. Take a shower, apparently, because yeah. he smelled funny. Uh, he, needs a, he, he needs a friend. I know he not does. just the hope, but the desire a, for love delusions is done for us. Yeah. Like, Sir. All, the, all the things that we hoped all those illusions we hope for is now dead. Yeah. Let me, oh, so actually both of you are, are, are pointing to this, which is good. So he, when, when he is talking about these illusions, he means something I think a little more technical yeah. than uh, a literal illusion. So he has this theory of, uh, around pleasure that I think you all will be more receptive to than this poem. Okay, I'm ready. Um, so Leopardi is bummed out by life and he wants to give a reason for why he's bummed out by life. And he thinks that this is inherent in the human condition. So like all humans mm. must be bummed out. And the reason that if they're like honest with themselves. As they get older? Nope. Oh. Well, actually, yes, I'm sorry. A childhood is perfect. Yeah, yeah. Everyone should stay a child forever. Very romantic. But because nature hates us, yes. we have to grow up. And when we grow up, we start to realize that. Nature hates us or nature is like cruel and has abandoned us? Uh not abandoned because nature puts this in us. Oh, okay. But okay. There so there's, a, there's it's an nature's mal- nature's malicious. malicious. Okay. Yeah, there's an animate force. So that that that's a little. That's very different from like British romanticism. Is it? Okay. That's cool. So the, and again, those differences that um, I just don't know enough to pick up on. But there is like this animate for. Well, I don't know how much of it is poetic language versus he means mm-hmm. nature puts this in us. But how can you hate nature when you live in Italy? Yeah, I know. That's the like, other thing. For is real, like, guys, how do you take a visit to Siberia. Then, <laughs> yeah. see, how you then you see how yeah. miserable things really are. Yeah. I don't know. I assume his village is beautiful. I don't actually know. It's uh, Riconti. No. It's Riconti. like the world is filled with filth. It's like, but, dude. Go look outside, man. <laughs> it's, like, it's a great like Birds chirping in those beautiful Oh, he lives on the coast. Riconati is on the coast. Oh, so. like, Flipping kidding me. The coast of Italy and yeah. this guy's nature. Yeah. Everything is boredom and filth. Well, like, man, like, like every flower can grow. It just falls out of the packet and it's immediately a flower. <laughs> so he doesn't, again, when he says nature, he mean, he doesn't mean the outdoors. Yes. He means like the thing that's the way humans are born. Mm-hmm. The thing, he, he doesn't want to talk about God, but he'll talk about nature. So the his his ordering goes like this, that in childhood, we don't know any better. We lack experience. We lack knowledge. We lack expectations is I think a way that he would put it and anything we come across is new and exciting and interesting. And so it totally fulfills us for as long as we're distracted by it. And then we get used to it and that growth and experience grows our expectations of what we need from life. Hmm. But when we're little, there are are enough things to kind of distract us for long enough. So, you know, I'm just thinking of like the first time my my oldest child watched a movie, it like blew his mind that this is a thing I can do. Well, the next movie is not going to be as great as that. The third movie is not going to be as great. It's all diminishing returns all the way down. Well, as we grow up, our desire for pleasure is is uh, is the limit. Of, it's approaching infinite. It's uh, he describes it as infinite, but I think the way his progression works, it's kind of it, it grows to infinity essentially. And um, what we're seeking after will be individual things that give us pleasure. So we'll you know we want good food, we want good drink, we want good friends, we want good books. But the thing we're actually going after is something to fulfill that deeper desire just to be pleased, just to be distracted, just to be not bored. 
in that um, we can accomplish that when we're little and we can accomplish that less and less as we grow up. Um, and so then that's what he's, oh, but what influences to what degree we are pleased is our imagination. So different people like um, AJ, you just ate tacos before we had this, um, before we started recording. Were those pretty good tacos? Yeah, but they're making me sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. But like, let's say that like, I love tacos. Tacos are my favorite food. Am I going to enjoy the 17 tacos you ate more than you did? I don't know. They're pretty dang good. It's <laughs> like, but, I don't know if anybody can not enjoy those tacos. Well, or let me say, what if I'm allergic to the food in those tacos and I eat the same number you did? Will I have less enjoyment than you did? Yeah, don't okay. eat. You're, you're allergic, man. Okay. But I'm just saying the same objective experience will have different subjective experiences. Does that make sense? So you can have a, ple- a pleasant experience eating tacos. Graham, who's like just a happy person, will have a way happier experience eating those tacos. Me as a curmudgeon will hate the tacos. Same objective experience, three different subjective experiences. Okay, so what allows us to change the amount of, of pleasure or enjoyment is that imagination. It's not, we can't accomplish our desire for pleasure through experiences of pleasure we need greater imaginations of what pleasure we can get from things. But our desire for pleasure is always infinite. Therefore, we're always uh, disappointed with the things around us. Why doesn't he just change his mindset and be the happy guy? He does not. Well, he doesn't say that. The one, the the answer, I think, is try and rein in your pleasures. Yeah. Or your desire for pleasure. But uh, his argument is that you can't do that. Hmm. Now, you, you can disagree with him. But just on like a practical level, think about how most teachings aren't, you need to seek more pleasures. Most teachings are around, you need to limit your desire for Mm -hmm. pleasures, indicating people tend not to have a problem wanting more things. They Mm -hmm. tend to have a problem wanting fewer things. I I just think that he, uh, the people who think childhood is amazing have clearly forgotten what it's like (laughs) to be a kid. Yeah. Like, I think so. I mean, think about the times that you spent with your siblings. You have un- unbounded jealousy and anger and fury and I remember fighting and feeling hopeless and feeling powerless because you can't do any of the things that you want your parents can all do those things I want ice cream I'm not allowed to have it right right and and if you ever hang out with kids I can't tell you how often Graham and I will be interested in something for far longer than our students will and they're like I need something I need something more to juice my brain Right. right so it's not that I think we become more and more bored as we get older, I think spending any amount of time with children will tell you different. They are bored so quickly. Sure. I think and, that's fair. Yeah. And so I think that his progression is wonky. Like, I am I am perfectly happy sitting next to a fire reading a book for hours. Sure. Try to get a kid to do that. Um, I agree with you. I don't know if everyone... Does everyone kind of follow that trajectory as they get older? It, Maybe could, not. Could I just as easily paint you a picture where... When you're young, you kind of just accept whatever comes into your life. And as you're older, you're striving for something, which means you're trying to work to get something. Fair, but I, I think it comes down to Graham's issue, which is you you get to, and not that an issue you have, but mm. the thing you brought up. This is Graham's the, issue. That you can influence your own dang attitude, yes, right? Yes, sure. And which, I, from my very little exposure to his thought, doesn't fit into his discussion around pleasure. He views these as unchanging necessities of the human person, which is, which doesn't seem, I agree with you. It doesn't seem fair, but, um, there's no reason for him to have this category of limiting desires. If you can't do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. You can limit your desires. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And 
most most philosophers talk about wanting to like the Stoics talk about you need to be perfectly happy in and of yourself, separate from everything around you. Yeah, but even to take the Stoic example, the fact oh. they have to say that right. is proof that people want more. Okay, fair enough. I don't know if the difference matters, but that's what that's what he points to to say that's why that's why all of religion is to tell you to desire less. But what about adding something like this to the to his sort of belief on on desires? So I know. So every morning I drink a delicious uh, cup of coffee. I make an espresso. I make a latte with my espresso machine, um, and every morning it's great. It's always really good. And when I'm done it, what do I want? I want a second one. Yeah, right. And uh, if I do have the second one, either right away or even a couple hours later, it's never as good. It's never as good as the first one. Now, I now know that in my mind, um, and so I will often, even though I want the second cup of coffee, will deliberately not have it because I know that it's not going to be good until the next morning. Right. And then it's almost like the desire resets. And so that in the next morning, the coffee is just as good because I... You was, went without, I went without the desire for, you know, for the rest of the day. Yeah. Oh, morning. Dragon yeah. breath. You ever heard it called that? I've never heard it called that. That's funny. Does this make sense? So yes, it's it like you, yes. so it, I actually, um, so the, the cup of coffee is as good every day because I don't have the second cup of coffee when I want it. Sure. I think Leopardi would look and see the suffering of, I know suffering. No, is I know. It's, it, it's but, a good point. But like, um, he would put front and center that you can't enjoy a second one. That co- the possibility has been cut off from you. Yes. And, and in fact, Drinking the first one means you can't enjoy but a second one. just change your timeline. Like, I sure. can enjoy the second cup of coffee. It's just 24 hours later. Let me, this is a, an image he gives that I think the metaphor lines up with what you're saying, uh-huh. too, that there's like an appearance of a positive thing, but there's this underlying missing out sadness thing happening. Yeah. So this is the guy that rains on every parade. Yeah, you would hate this guy. Oh, my gosh. Um, I kind of He's not a seven. He's not a that way. No, he's not. <laughs> uh, he's probably a five, unfortunately. He's like a me. zero. <laughs> hey, that's go. me. No, I'm a nine. <laughs> You're a nine. Uh, Isn't a nine zero? No, Same thing? that's not oh. a thing. I don't think there is a zero. There's oh. no zero. Okay. Go into a garden of plants, grass, flowers. No matter how lovely it seems, even in the mildest season of the year, you will not be able to look anywhere and not find suffering. That... <laughs> Do you like this guy? This is one of his later. I hate this guy already. <laughs> that whole family of vegetation is in a state of, he uses a different word. It means suffering, but in a state of suffering, each in its own way to some degree. Uh, here a rose is attacked by the sun, which has given it life. It withers, languishes, wilts. I just want to tickle him. I just want to, oh my word. <laughs> poor guy. There is a lily, uh, there a lily is sucked cruelly by a bee in its most sensitive, most life-giving part. Sweet honey is not produced by industrious, patient, good, virtuous bees without unspeakable torment f- uh, for these most delicate fibers, without the pitiless massacre of flowerets. Does he know what flowers, why flowers do this? Or how that works? Like this guy needs to take a biology class. Flowers well, do that on purpose. The, <laughs> they want attracting bees, bees yes. to get yeah. the pollen, but there's but they're taking something. I understand that, like I understand that response. But do, can you see underneath what? Like yes, there's a pretty scene in front of you, but it's almost like the um, and maybe you two fall in this camp. Like when you overemphasize the goodness of like the outdoors, you ignore the fact that like most animals live to be eaten by a carnivore, and like. Um, Violence is a part of being in nature. Does that make sense? Oh, nature is savage and brutal. I can yes. give you that. But yes. geez, what an example to pick. Uh, bees and flowers. <laughs> <laughs> like, like of all the things you could have chosen in a garden. Sure. Yeah. You chose a bee and a flower? That was the one? I agree on the goofiness side, but is he wrong? Like, yes. I don't think he's wrong. I, I think, don't think it hurts the flower at all to have a bee in there. I don't in, know. in fact, it helps them. But it, it helps them. And not only that, they don't, I don't think they have pain centers. 
So like, oh. not only can the that's what I mean in biology oh, class. Sure. Not oh, only can man. the flower not be hurt by the bee huh? in the first place, it is beneficial to all life, the bee and the flower. And the bees Everyone got is a friend here. The yeah. bee's got his little bumble butt going. It's all covered in pollen. <laughs> He's having a great day. And yeah. the flower's like, hot dang, this is how I get to do it with another flower. Yes. Yeah, like, okay. I am I am currently... Uh, but, okay. So, but his point is. Doing the business. So his Let point is that it's just getting <laughs> a little more on, on point. You, no, you, these are responses are great. I thought AJ, you would be more open to this. But oh, this, no, this is encouraging that you're not. That tree is infested by an ant colony. That one by caterpillars, flies, snails, mosquitoes. This one is injured in its bark and afflicted by the air or by the sun that's that's penetrating that wound. The that other one has a damaged trunk or roots or whatever. So, like, I, I take your point, but there is like uh, use sure. and breaking of. Or think of decay. Decay is uh, something. Well, every fall we celebrate decay. Basically, right? I can I can give him that. But again, I mean, he just rains on every parade. Yep. You could have he could have talked about how those wounds eventually heal and become sure. a mark in the rings that makes the tree more beautiful. Sure. Or even tree cancer, if you cut it open, makes burl and the most beautiful furniture. Like, or he could have talked about how and therefore I have planted myself in the garden to tend it. Right, right. like. You know, there's he has a lot of options other than being Mr. Totally giving up, Mr. Dumpy Shorts walking around the garden, being like, you know, what sucks, flowers. Well, then you all will let me. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll move to this as kind of his his final summary of his uh, his view on things, uh, and I hope you'll laugh as much at this one. Everything is evil. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. That is to say, everything that is is evil. That each thing exists <laughs> is an evil. Each thing exists only for an evil existence is an evil and made for evil. The end of the universe is evil. The order in the state, the laws, the natural development of the universe are nothing but evil and they are directed to nothing but evil. Uh, I, I, he, he goes on and repeats the word evil many more but times. What is, what is his like, his ethic of good? Like he talks about some sort of idyllic childhood as what the, the good or is it the idyllic childhood the, the it's pleasure it's it's happiness it's okay. he felt good in his childhood and that's the thing that we're um that we want and which i think is a very mm. romantic idea let me just uh, just because he references some of our recent topics this system although it clashes with those ideas of ours that the end can be no other than good is probably more sustainable than that of leibniz pope etc that everything is good I would not dare, however, to go on to say that the universe which exists is the worst of possible universes, thereby substituting pessimism for optimism. Who can know the limits of possibility? Wait, did he write that? Or did he wrote else? that. That's him writing. Mm-hmm. So okay. So he's well. At least he's not saying like this is the worst thing ever. He's so. I'm doing a bad job of summarizing it, and even by me like poking fun at it, I'm doing a bad job of summarizing it. What I think Leopardi is trying to accomplish is looking at what is. The up, what is an objective thing that we can look out and see? And the experience of disappointment is an objective experience. I, there are, you know, maybe there are some of us who are, who are blessed with happiness, birth to death, but very few of us are. And we will have expectations that can't be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. What he views as essential is that we will desire more and more things, but that we won't be able to accomplish those desires because uh, it's, an in, it's, it's infinite. We can't do that. And what is the ultimate end of all things is we will die one day. That's an objective thing that we can point to. And so then he's trying to pull meaning from those object, meaning is the wrong word, but he's trying to look at and say, what, what are these things? What is the significance of them? And what he will end at is there's no reason. He, he ends up deeply ascetical because there's no point in pursuing pleasure because it will only ever disappoint you. Um, that you are going to die one day. And so all, all you work for will, cease at some point 
So there's no point in looking forward to anything else. Your life is going to end the same way no matter what. Um, so he ends in a bleak place, but I think what he's trying to accomplish is be objective in what people experience. If I conveyed that, is that a fair way of summarizing it? Mm, what's the what's the objectivity of what people experience? Death and disappointment. Okay. I still just feel like he's coming from a real particular place. Maybe. Uh, he One of his critics... Um, it's hard not to, like, sort of contextualize and psychoanalyze him based on his life. Like, yes. we, we should take yeah. him at his, at his philosophy as opposed to be, like, poor hunchback boy. Yeah, I mean, reading the poetry, I think, gives a certain picture. I think yes. reading his philosophy might be more generous. Like, oh. like I, I mean, if, if I read his philosophy, maybe I would be more like, okay, I see where this guy's coming from. Yes, I know it was published on his request after he died, but also it's 2,000 pages, and if you need that long to make your argument, something's wrong. But I do wish it was presented more concisely, I guess I would say. Hmm. But um, just to the point both of you were just making, one of his literary critics at the time said that the best way to summarize Leopardi's philosophy is, there is no God because I'm a hunchback. I am a hunchback because there is no God. <laughs> so this was a, a during his lifetime critique that he Oof. received. Um, <laughs> But the interest that I have is that I think that Leopardi will draw similar conclusions about the um, the meaning that's in the world as Nietzsche, but they come to very different conclusions about what to do mm-hmm. about that sense of meaninglessness in the world. So Leopardi will view the basically his goal is to distract himself until he dies. That distraction keeps you from thinking about the the state of the world. And so these beautiful poems that he puts out are a means of distraction until ultimate eradication. Um, And so that's his answer in the face of a godless world. What do you do? Make beautiful, distracting things until you die. Oh, man, he would have loved the Internet. (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong, though. And that's, yeah, maybe something to go into maybe in the in-between or maybe another time of... uh, There's a lot here that I think kind of resonates to today. Or does even the medium of the Internet, like... Require fan it. into yes. flames those latent those latent kinds of sentiments. Yes, I think so. Oof. Uh, but anyway, we're at our hour, so we should definitely wrap this one up. But that's uh, that's Leopardi. His his <laughs> his canti. So his collection of poems, I think, are great. Uh, his Zibaldoni is interesting. It's just it's literally everything he wrote for thirty years. So it's it's just a lot to dive into. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I played no. I played kind of the curmudgeon on this one and sorry. was dismissive of philosophy. So I, audience, I'm sorry that I didn't necessarily get on board, but it's it just little, seems like he's really leaning on the on the negative side here. And he I'm such a positive the, fella. He, he is leaning on the negative side, but he will be an influence to Nietzsche. So does, yeah. does that make like mm, so? That's the okay. kind of train that we're going to follow with this. But to go maybe from Nietzsche's a, more fun. To go from problem. Italian Dante to Italian Leopardi is an interesting sort of um, well, basically. If you if you want those aren't bookends, but if we're going to use them as bookends, just to think about like okay, what's happening in the mind and hearts of your of Europe at the time to go from Dante talking about Beatrice and Leopardi talking about Fanny, right? You like that? <laughs> um, uh, in the same way, but with like completely different conclusions. Conclusions. Yeah, that's kind of fun. And from different sort of some different sort of vantage points as well. Yeah. But but, no, but also in terms of who describes like the current moment better i think leopardi gets closer to it yeah 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 and that's also what's interesting about him it's easy to laugh about but there's also like um i think yeah there are parts of pop culture that would fall under nihilism sure which is closer to leopardi's presentation Mm -hmm. um 
I you, think modern people would find him more accessible than Dante. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But anyway, we're, we're way over on time. So let's uh, wrap it up. Who intro? You I did. So did. this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know with Graham, AJ, and Thomas. Um, thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on classicalstuff.net. You can email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. And you can patronize us um, by joining our Patreon where there are tears and cheers. <laughs> and... Um, leers as AJ is no, giving nope, me a funny nope, look nope, right now. Nope. Um, and if you're real generous, beers. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but anyway, this is Graham, AJ, and Thomas signing off. Bye. 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 Don't forget, we all die. <laughs>